thanks to Doug and Leslie for putting that together for us. Much appreciated. Uh, I'll have a couple more uh, over the next couple weeks as we continue or start this sermon series, Living Generously for the Age to Come, that I'm responsible for uh, kicking off this morning. As I was thinking about it, I was thinking kicking off, I started thinking about, uh, for some reason my mind just started thinking about good advice, good advice I've received. And I don't know about you guys, if, if, if you've ever had a piece of advice that you uh, received at some point in your life and it's just stuck with you, it's just stuck in your brain. And uh, it's just served you well, and it's been proven to be true over the course of years. I've, I've received a couple of pieces of advice that have really, uh, that have really stuck with me over the years. Uh, first one I remember was when uh, I was in high school, and uh, on our high school rugby team, we played rugby, uh, not football, up there in uh, Canada. And our rugby coach got us together, and he gave us some words of advice that were really important to him. And uh, he used some words that they told me in preaching class we're not allowed to use on, uh, in a pulpit on Sunday mornings. So you just have to imagine those. But he gathered us together and he said, um, he said, guys, you know, there's some great athletes here. You guys are really good athletes. You've really worked hard. You've put in the work. And you're a great team and you're, you're great athletes. But the thing I want you guys to remember, if I teach you anything, is that you're only going to be a great athlete for a short while no matter how good you are. <laughs> but if you're a jerk, <laughs> if you're a jerk, you might be a jerk for life. And nobody will ever forget it. They will forget you were a great athlete, believe me. But they'll never forget that you were a jerk. <laughs> I've found that to be true. <laughs> Another great piece of advice that I got was a little bit later in life when I was uh, starting out in ministry and I had a, a spiritual mentor and he told me a piece of advice that I, has, has just been true <laughs> over and over again. He said, Dave, you always need to remember this equation, <laughs> right information plus wrong heart equals wrong conclusion. Right information plus, or right whatever plus Wrong heart, wrong attitude, wrong character will always end up somewhere you don't want to go. Wrong conclusion. And I found that to be true. And that's what got me thinking about that piece of advice and advice because the passage that we're dealing with today, I think, really focuses in on that issue. And um, as we, uh, we look at this passage, just thinking about living generously for the age to come as we kind of kick off this series and are, are thinking about these issues, it's absolutely essential that we get the right heart. And we're talking about living for the age to come. Living, not waiting for the age to come, but living for the age to come. That we have the right heart when we talk about generosity, finances, resources, and the things we do. We need to have the right heart, not just the right information. And the passage that we're, we're looking at today is one of, uh, it's part of Jesus' last public statement that he gives. <laughs> and uh, he was feeling pretty saucy that day. Um, Jesus really goes on a tear in Matthew chapter 23. Uh, some pretty hard words that he has to say. I just want to look at a snippet of that, uh, of that, that 
chapter today and kind of tear it apart to a little bit to see what Jesus might have to say to us in our particular context. So let's read together Matthew 23, verses 23 through 24. Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So if Jesus ever had a roast, you know, this is it, right? Matthew 23, if you want to read it through sometime. And I just want to take a couple of minutes just to share a few thoughts from this passage that I think we'd be able to apply to ourselves, I hope. First thing that kind of stands out to me about this passage is just this use of the word weightier, weightier. It's a great $2 word, you know, that we never use in conversation, weightier. And it makes me think of another time that this word gets used in John chapter 5 when Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, and he says, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I'm doing testify that the Father has sent me. Of course, Jesus isn't saying that John's testimony is wrong. John's testimony is false about repentance and the coming Messiah. It's not that his testimony is wrong. It's that Jesus' testimony is more important. Jesus' testimony of the kingdom and his Messiahship is at the heart of the matter. His testimony is weightier. It's the same thing here in looking at this passage. Not that the law or the way the Pharisees were were applying it necessarily was wrong, it's that they'd missed the heart of it, the weightier matters, what was at the heart of the law. And then second, there's this kind of this thing that comes up in this passage, at least in my mind, sort of this Jesus versus religion, uh, if you might want to call it that. It's kind of interesting because they're tithing from dill, mint, and cumin, which isn't actually (laughs) in the law. It's not in the Mosaic Law. What they would do is take passages like Leviticus 27.30 where it says a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit or trees, belongs to the Lord. It's holy to the Lord. There's this passage and a similar one in, in Deuteronomy. That they would take, but then they would create all of these additional laws, hundreds of them, which were then gathered into what we call the Mishnah. Uh, once they were written down, it was oral during Jesus' time, all these laws that they had created, additional laws, just to make sure that nobody even got near to actually breaking the letter of the law in the Mosaic law. But what's really interesting is that Jesus doesn't condemn them for it in this passage. He says, you should have done the things I'm talking about without neglecting those. He doesn't actually condemn them for it, which is somewhat interesting. The point to make there is that I think oftentimes we oversimplify some things. When we read like a Matthew 23, we may walk away with sort of oversimplified conclusions like religion bad, Jesus good. Pharisees bad, Jesus good. Which is an oversimplification because I think we remove some of the context of Jesus' life. We have to remember, it's so important to remember that Jesus, not just ethnically and nationally, but religiously, Jesus was an observant Jew. Jesus was an observant Jewish man. 
He was a participant and a product of the religious system in which he was raised. He was not outside of it. He was transforming it from within or calling it back to its heart, but he was not outside of it, condemning it. We see this all through the the, the Gospels. We read in Luke 4 that Jesus went to the synagogue, as was regularly his practice. He grew up going to the synagogue. He knew how to read, which he would have learned in the synagogue. He was recognized in the synagogue. We, We see him get up and read from the Torah in the synagogue. He knew where to go, where they were in their readings. He knew where to read from. Jesus went to Jerusalem to observe the feasts with his parents. When he left his parents, he continued to observe the feasts. Jesus, when he heals the leper, he commands the leper to go see, to show himself to the priest, to demonstrate his cleanliness, which is what was required by the law. In Leviticus chapter 14. And then same thing is also true in dealing with the Pharisees, it's kind of this mixed, mixed bag that we see in the Gospels. It's interesting, you know, reading some of the material from outside of the Scriptures from Jesus' time, from the Pharisees. There were two main, main teachers. Uh, Hillel was the, uh, the Nasi, the, the president of the Sanhedrin when Jesus was growing up, and then uh, Shammai uh, followed him. But if you listen to some of the teachings of Hillel, it's very interesting. I'll give you one of them. Halal said this, he says, that which is hateful to you, do not do to another. That is the entire Torah, and the rest of its interpretation, go study. Pretty, pretty interesting. <laughs> do unto others as you would have do un, uh, done unto you. All the law and the prophets hang on this. Sound familiar? It's interesting. Jesus grew up <laughs> when he was at the temple when he was a young man. Do you remember when his parents left him there on accident? Which, don't we all do that? I've done that a couple of times. You forget, you forget a kid, you know, when you get home. And it would have been Hillel and Shammai or their acolytes that Jesus was interacting with. And so we just see kind of this mixed bag all over, uh, all over the, the Gospels. For example, you also see Joseph of Arimathea prominent member of the, the Sanhedrin, buries Jesus and purchases his tomb. Nicodemus defends Jesus in the Sanhedrin in John chapter 7. The Pharisees invite Jesus to, to dinner with no agenda. They just invite him over to dinner to talk to him in several places. The Pharisees warn Jesus about Herod's plan so he won't be killed by Herod. The scribes appreciate what Jesus has to say in Mark 12. Gamaliel, who is Hillel's grandson and ends up being the leader of the Sanhedrin, uh, later, he rescues the apostles uh, from death at the hands of the Sadducees in Acts chapter 5. And so you have this mixed bag. And it was actually likely probably um, the acolytes of Shammai who were much more strict in their application of the law that Jesus was confronting in Matthew 23. Probably very likely, uh, very likely scenario. But there's this mixed bag, and I hope I'm not making uh, too big of a point of it. Um, But I think it's important to recognize because I think oftentimes, you know, when we read these types of passages, we make religion the problem. We externalize things, right? We don't want to deal with the internal. We want to externalize and have some enemy outside of ourselves. You know, I'm with Jesus. Religion is bad, which is just not um, consistent with the context of Jesus and his life and this passage. His primary concern was not the form It was not the information when he's confronting the Pharisees. It was the heart and what the combination of those was not producing. 
justice and mercy and faithfulness, which leads us to having the right heart, which is really at the center of what Jesus is getting at here. What Jesus would not tolerate is religion that existed for itself or to serve the form and the externals of that religion. And this is what the Pharisees had done. They decided to focus on the form of religion and the externals of religion. They made right information the goal, (laughs) the entire goal and vision of their faith. And they did not have the right heart, and so they missed the conclusion. And it's kind of surprising, right? Because, I mean, if you read the law, it's sort of all over the place, (laughs) what the point is of the law. And somehow, they managed to miss what these weightier matters are that Jesus was talking about. Even if you do just a super basic, quick survey of the Old Testament, you'll see that they'd missed the entire point of the whole tithing system. That they had. In Deuteronomy 15, 4 through 5, it says, However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you will fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving to you. And you see this all over, all over the law, whether it's the seven year debt release or the 50 year jubilee of all property being returned to its original owners and the tithing system. All exists so that there will be no need or lack among them. And somehow they had missed this. And then in the prophets, even more pointedly, we read in Micah 6, 6 through 8, With what should I enter the Lord's presence? With what should I bow before the sovereign Lord? Should I enter his presence with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord accept a thousand rams or ten thousand streams of olive oil? Should I give him my firstborn child as a payment for my rebellion? My offspring, my own flesh and blood for my sin. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord really want from you? He wants you to promote justice and be faithful and live obediently before your God. Amos chapter 5. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Or Isaiah chapter 1, when you enter my presence, do you actually think (laughs) I want this? Animals trampling on my courtyards. Do not bring any more meaningless offering. I consider your incense detestable. You observe new moon festivals, Sabbaths, convocations, but I can't tolerate sin-stained celebrations. I hate your new moon festivals and assemblies. They're a burden that I'm tired of carrying. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I look the other way. When you offer your many prayers, I do not listen. Because your hands are covered in blood. Wash, cleanse yourselves, remove your sinful deeds from my sight. Stop sinning. Learn to do what is right. Promote justice. Give the oppressed reason to celebrate. Take up the cause of the orphan. Defend the rights of the widow. And then even more explicitly, Hosea 6.6. Look, (laughs) I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So it's all over. 
the law, the prophets. And Jesus picks this theme up. It's what he's trying to call them back to in our passage. In verse 23, for you tithe, mill, dill, mint, and cumin, but have neglected these weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And then in several of his interactions, he repeats what we just read in Hosea 6.6 in several of his interactions with the Pharisees. In Matthew 9, he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And in Matthew 12, if you'd only known the meaning of I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. He has this interaction numerous times when he runs afoul of the Mishnah, some of the extra laws that he created that were preventing what was really at the heart of the law. He says, I, and he repeatedly reminds him, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's where you're missing it, in the heart. And then, of course, in the New Testament church, this is affirmed as well, again and again, most poignantly, I think, in a verse we're all familiar with in James 1, 26, 27. If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless, and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. And so Jesus, they'd missed the very heart of the law, which is what, they had the right information. He didn't seem all that concerned with the information they had. It's that they'd missed the heart of it and therefore were producing the wrong outcomes. <laughs> Later in Matthew 23, he says, Your converts are twice the children of hell that you are. (laughs) They're going even further than you. Because they'd missed the heart, so the outcomes were wrong. And so he's accusing them of hypocrisy. But how did they get it so wrong? (laughs) How could they have gotten it so wrong when it's so clear? And I think the key to that is sort of at the very heart of what hypocrisy is all about. We know that hypocrisy, by definition you know, is holding a certain set of values or beliefs, but then your actions don't line up with those values or beliefs that you claim to hold. We kind of all know that, and it's easy to see in other people. It's really difficult (laughs) to see in ourselves sometimes. But I think, uh, more pointedly, uh, what social scientists will say about hypocrisy is they'll talk about what is the goal, the desired outcome of hypocrisy, which I think is helpful. (laughs) The goal of hypocrisy is this. To achieve the appearance of being good without paying the cost of actually being good. To achieve the appearance of being good without paying the cost of actually being good. And I think this is the key to why (laughs) they were able to sort of ignore those things and focus on those external things. Because external righteousness, rule-keeping is easy. Rule-keeping is easy. We can control it. We can codify it. We can check off the boxes, and we can control it. But inward righteousness is painful. It's hard. It's a lifelong journey. That's a grind. (laughs) Week in and week out. And the Pharisees opted for the easy external appearance of goodness. Because we all want to be respected, right? We all want to be considered good. We all want to 
do the externals that will maintain power and respect for us. And so they'd opted for the easy and ignored the difficult, which was very at the very heart of the law, therefore producing the wrong outcomes. And the same is true, I think, when we're talking about this generosity and finances. You know, token, token uh, charity is pretty cheap. It's pretty easy. But to produce intentionality and generosity and justice with those resources, that's hard work. That's sacrificial. That's tough work. And so when we think about this passage and some of these things we've talked about, and what Jesus was, was trying to get at, and then we apply it to ourselves and to our church context, I think it's helpful to just ask a few, few questions to think about it more deeply. Some of the questions that I think we should ask ourselves if we want to know if we're really living generously, living not just with the right information, but with the right heart so we're producing what God wants of justice and mercy and faithfulness. First question I would ask is, are we primarily concerned about the religious form? Are we primarily concerned about the religious form looking good? Because our tendency, hey, I've I've been in church leadership since I was 19 years old. (laughs) That's the tendency. The tendency is to make the form look good. And that's why we sort of cater to things like convenience and security, comfort, preference. This is why 90%, it's well beyond 90% of all giving in the American church goes to improve the experience of the attenders. Because the form... If the form's good, if the experience is good, it looks good. It's successful. Are we more concerned about that? Or do we avoid the tough work of inner righteousness that will produce justice and mercy and faithfulness? Do we judge ourselves? Do we judge our churches by the form looking good? Or do we judge our churches by the production of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Is that what we're known for? Is that what the church is known for? So are we primarily concerned about the form? Secondly, are we willing to pay the cost for true righteousness? This is another problem that we see sometimes when it comes to discipleship and Christian living. Are we more concerned about orthodoxy right belief and ideology than we are about orthopraxy, right living. Are we more concerned with orthodoxy, the ubiquitous problem, perhaps even sin, of the evangelical church is that we substitute ideological purity for discipleship. We substitute ideological purity for discipleship. We produce people that say, I am holy because... They have the right opinions. Is this why the church is rife and Christianity is rife with leaders who treat people like dirt and nobody seems to mind? 
as long as they can produce the form of religion or they're believers, they're churchgoers. I have the conversation regularly <laughs> with people who are saying, oh, you know, there's somebody that's just really mean and nasty and, and you know, but they're a believer. You know, they're a believer, but they believe. <laughs> Is that really what we're, we're going for? Are we willing to pay the price in prayer and relationships and the pursuit of God to produce Christ-likeness? Or are we satisfied with right information, right doctrine, right ideology that has no heart and does not produce justice and mercy and faithfulness? I think James put it this way. He said, right belief, and Jesus would affirm this, In our passage today, right belief is good. Right belief is good, but James says demons have right belief too. Right belief with no Christian life is dead. Right belief and no works is dead. So are we willing to pay the cost for true righteousness, or are we just satisfied with the form of godliness? And lastly, do we settle for the appearance of good when it comes to our generosity? Tough question to answer. (laughs) Why do Christians give so little when it comes to their resources? You could say, you know, maybe it's because the church or the charities or the, the nonprofits aren't really doing, you know, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You know, maybe there's a good reason for that. Um, and so we don't, we don't support it. Or uh, is it possible that the reason we give so little, little is because we want to look good, we want to tick the, tick the box, so maybe we give a little something to a charitable cause so we can tick that box, but we're not really invested sacrificially. I'm not, and I'm, you know, in these things that I'm saying, I mean, they're kind of tough questions. I debated whether to, <laughs> to say them because they're pretty judgy, pretty judgy sounding. Um, but I'm not condemning anyone, but I think these are the questions that we have to ask if we want to know, are we really any different <laughs> from the Pharisees? Where the externals, the outside looks clean, but the inside is filthy. Therefore, it cannot produce justice and mercy and faithfulness. Are we just obsessed with the form, but are we really willing to do the hard work of pursuing the heart of God so that justice and mercy flows from our lives and from our churches? So those are some questions I think we would have to ask. And how do we avoid falling in this trap real quickly? How do we avoid falling in this trap? Two things that I think are really important. I don't think it's a mistake that Matthew 23, after Jesus goes on... <laughs> Quite a tear. The end of Matthew 23, Jesus says this. I'll try not to cry. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you. How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look Your house is left to you desolate. We have to come to him. That's what he wants. I don't think it's a mistake that the passage 
concludes with that. We cannot produce (laughs) on our own internal righteousness. That's why we default to the externals, because we can control those, we can produce those, we can manipulate those. (laughs) But it requires complete dependence on Jesus and the work of the Spirit of God in our lives in order to produce true righteousness in us. And are we willing to pay the cost and the grind (laughs) week in, week out of committing to that, to partnering with the Spirit in our lives so that we will be conformed into the image of Christ and produce godly fruit? And then secondly, I think Jesus gives us the number one point when it comes to our resources in Matthew 6. Scripture you all know. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. So what are you focused on? Where are your resources going? Where is your treasure going? If we invest into the things that are related to the heart of God and the weightier matters of the law, those will guide us. They will fill the whole body with light and the life of God. And this is why at Bethany, some of the things that we do, I hope, and do more so, are trying to focus on those things. This is why we embrace simplicity in our operations often. This is why in our children's ministry, they're focused on teaching a vibrant life of prayer so they will really know God and not just be entertained. This is why in our youth and junior youth, we're really trying to get this right, not perfectly. We're trying to get it right, discipling well. Discipling people well that they would really know the heart of God. That's why we continue to give to missions and take up a missions offering so that those that haven't heard the gospel will hear. It's why we have a benevolence fund to care for those in need in our church. It's why we created the storehouse fund a couple of years ago so we will not forget the poor, the refugee, the orphan, and the persecuted, that our money would go there consistently and generously, which you guys have been very generous in these areas. And so that will lead us into the whole body being filled with light. That's why so many of you have participated either in adoption or foster care or supported. Supported those who have. It's why we want to do more in local outreach and local church planning, not to get people from other churches, but to get those who do not know God into fellowship. That's why we want to do more with local outreach. And if you guys don't know what Val does in the LGBTQ community on Friday nights doing outreach and how she loves them, we want to do more of that. We want to do more with bridging, helping those in need in our community. We want to do more with what Mike Niederer does in the Somali community, this massive unreached community right in our own neighborhood. That's why we want to do more of those things. That's why we're investing in those things And when we ask about giving, when we preach on living living generously, it's not so we can clean up the externals and the form. It's so we can invest more into the things that really matter. They're at the heart of God. So we will produce justice and mercy and faithfulness. So I'm going to invite the uh, 
worship team uh, to come forward, and we're going to close with a, a time of worship. I'm going to pray, and then Doug's going to come up and give us a, a short announcement, and then we're just going to go into a, a time of worship. But let's just pray together as the uh, worship team comes forward. Lord, we want, in living for the age to come, in living generously, Lord, for the age to come, we want to make sure that we're investing in the things that are on your heart. Lord, we don't want to just look good. We don't want to tick some boxes, Lord. Lord, we want to pay the cost to really be good, to be righteous as you would have us be, to be conformed into your image, to care about the things that you care about, because those are the things that your kingdom is about. Those are the things that your kingdom is going to be about when it's established here on this earth in fullness, Lord. Those are the things that we want to invest in, the things that you're going to reward us for. Lord, we want to give. Lord, we want to live. We want to invest in those things. Help us, God. Help us to see where we're wrong. (laughs) It's so easy, Lord. It's so easy for us to read these words that you said and externalize them and say, oh, well, it was about those people. They were bad. Their religion was bad, Lord. Lord, we want to ask the hard questions. Lord, we want the internal righteousness that you were after. Lord, you desire mercy, not sacrifice. Lord, we want to desire and bring you the offerings that you truly desire. And so we ask that you'd help us, Lord. Help us to see ourselves rightly. Help us to see you rightly. Lord, and we just ask for a fresh move of your spirit among us as we look at these things and these issues. Lord, I pray that there'd be a new move among us. Lord, that we would really live in freedom and generosity and joy. Lord, of living the life that you've called us to live, inspired by your spirit to do it, Lord, knowing that we are pleasing you and we are about the things that you're about, partnering with you. Lord, I pray that that life would be new in us today and in the coming months and years, Lord. That's what we want. Lord, would you do it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.